0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing John Kiriakou, former CIA officer and author of a few books, including Surveillance and Surveillance Detection, How to Disappear and Live Off the Grid, Lying and Lie Detection. Boy, you've really been busy here. Uh, Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. You know, he went to prison over the torture scandal, not because he tortured people to death, but because he revealed the names of some who had tortured people. I don't know about to death or not, but... um, So he's the only one who got in trouble for blowing the whistle. And, of course, he wrote The Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis with the great Gareth Porter and The Reluctant Spy before that about uh, the war on terrorism. Oh, and The Convenient Terrorist about... The couple of Abu Zubaydahs, right? very interesting stuff. And he's got a brand new substack, which is johnkiriaku.substack.com. Welcome back to the show, John. How are you doing? Thanks so much, Scott. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, happy to have you here. So tell me, why did you kill Jack Kennedy?
1: I know, right? I'm just coming around. It's taken me all this time to just come around to the, to the idea that, uh, that at least elements of the CIA were responsible for killing, for killing JFK it's taken me this long so, you know what did it, you know what did it for me too uh, jefferson morley i was talking to jefferson morley the other day former washington post journalist amazing historian and scholar nobody knows as much about the kennedy killing as he does and he uncovered a document at the at the national archives just about 3 weeks ago from this latest tranche of kennedy documents that shows that the hands off cuba committee that Lee Harvey Oswald was a member of was actually a CIA front organization. Even if Oswald didn't know that he was being paid by the CIA, the CIA knew about Oswald. And you remember just before he was killed, he said he was a patsy. I think that's what this is all about.
0: Well, you know, um, so, and this was, I don't know how to pronounce the name, but this is the uh, document that uh, confirms that this guy, Joan Nanonides or something like that, he was the CIA uh, yeah. agent.
1: Yeah, e- yeah.
0: Yeah, how do you say it? Ioannidis. E- huh, well, great. Greek, Greek Let guy. Let the Greek guy say it. Yeah, yeah. I can't do it. Yeah, um, bad guy. Okay, great. So, and, and so that was it. So he's the direct connection there between the alleged shooter who seems like must have gotten off one of the shots or maybe not. That might be assuming too much whether he had, you know, actually pulled the trigger at all. But at least the accused shooter um, is has a direct connection there. Now, this guy was a CIA officer. He was himself an agent of an officer. He,
1: uh, he was an officer.
0: He was an officer. yo I
1: need this. Yeah, he, and, he was long known as a bad guy, uh, you know, sort of a black ops. I hate that that term, but it applies in this in this case. And I wanted to say something else. I I happened to be on, on Bob Kennedy's uh, show the other day. And after it was done, he told me something that was just fascinating. He said that on November 22nd, 63, his mom picked him up early from school. She took him out of school, um, and brought him home. She told him on the way home, what had happened. And when he got to the house, they lived at, in a big mansion in McLean, Virginia called Hickory Hill. Uh, he said that his dad was there with John McCone, who was the head of the CIA. And John McCone was a longtime family friend. He said McCone would come to the Kennedy house every day after work and swim in their pool. Oftentimes he would stay for dinner. He was unmarried at the time. And so he was very close to the Kennedy family. So Bob said that when he got out of the car, his dad and McCone were standing there talking and he overheard his dad say, tell me your people didn't do this. And McCone responded, I have no, uh, I have no idea who did this. And he said, the fact that McCone didn't say, oh, well, of course not. Of course, none of my people would have done something like this. That's not what he said. He said, I have no idea who did this. And he said, it's stuck in his mind for the last 60
0: years. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd like to go back to that. See, I well, what I'd like to do is uh lawnmower man the uh by osmosis somehow all of those books without having to sit and spend a year reading through them all right to, right because i'm just too young i don't know but i still would like to understand this i mean i guess well what i was trying to say is he was the attorney general he could have said i'm special prosecuting all of your asses and that's started right going crazy right yeah. um but then he would have been relying on J. Edgar Hoover. But hell, he could have just indicted J. Edgar Hoover. He yeah. could have done whatever he wanted. He could have he said, listen, ha- have the, the CIA couldn't have done this without you running cover for them. So now I'm indicting you for conspiracy too. you, bad old trans test school, whatever the hell. And he could have done whatever he wanted, right? But, you know, as much, but they didn't, as much... He didn't do that. He stuck around for a little while, then he resigned. And resigned. Ran for president and got himself shot again, yeah. uh, you know, a couple years later. Yeah. Yeah, he did. As much as... Hoover
1: hated the Kennedy's Hoover hated the CIA more. And I wonder what would have happened if Kennedy had gone to Hoover and said, I think the CIA did this. Cause you know, th- there's a story, there's a story that I heard many years ago that when Congress was writing the, the um, national security act of 1947, which created the CIA, uh, Hoover was, was adamantly opposed. He, he didn't believe we needed a CIA. There was already an OSS, It was winding things down now that the war was over, Um, and the only way that Truman could get Hoover to back off to get this bill passed was to lie to Hoover and tell him that once it was created, the CIA would be a division of the FBI, and so Hoover withdrew his his, uh, opposition, and then, of course, he was duped. It was never meant to be a division of the FBI. He was livid. He never forgave Truman for it, and institutionally this hatred of the between the FBI and the CIA lasted well beyond the 9/11 attacks.
0: Yeah, but not anymore. They're just one in the same agency now. Yeah,
1: it's pretty much one in the same. You know, the the big the big change, the the thing that finally brought them together after all those years was the CIA Framing do Donald Trump, right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah pretty much. What were
0: you going to say?
1: I I was going to say the computer systems. The computer systems were never compatible. Like for example, when I was at the CIA, I could email somebody at the state department or at NSA or DIA or energy or whatever I wanted. I couldn't email anybody at the FBI because the systems weren't compatible. Similarly, when any agency in the intelligence community Uh, released an intelligence report, no matter the classification, I would see it at the CIA. All the analysts would see it at the CIA, not FBI reports, again, because they were incompatible. And so it wasn't until after 9-11, like well after 9-11, like two, three, four years after 9-11, that they finally – cleared each other for the information, made the systems compatible, and then institutionalized a, a modus operandi where they could actually share information.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, hmm.
1: They did one other thing too, actually. After 9 uh, they named they named a CIA officer as deputy director of the FBI for counterterrorism. And they named an FBI officer as the deputy director of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center. So just to keep the honest people honest and make sure that this transfer of information was indeed taking place, they sort of placed people in each other's agencies.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you know what? As long as we're going down this road, um, how about September 11th and the role of Prince Bandar bin Sultan and Prince Turkey al-Faisal? I think the news is not very well publicized over this last year, but yeah. I think just over this last year, we've had a major leak from the lawsuit against the Saudis that's been published in pieces in a couple of papers here and there. It seems to reveal, if I understand right, John, that it's not just that the Saudi embassy was running the guy who was running or at least protecting. Uh, carrying and feeding for the San Diego cell, the flight 77 hijackers, but that all the different hijacker cells in America were being run and protected by the Saudi embassy in that same way. And, uh, and so like, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying that, but can you let us know, like what, what have we really learned over the last year beyond those 28 pages? I, I believe that the
1: Saudis or elements of the Saudi government were deeply involved in the planning and the financing of the 9-11 attacks, going all the way up to Bandar bin Sultan and uh, and Turkey al-Faisal. Turkey al Faisal, of course, was the head of the Saudi intelligence service, and Bandar bin Sultan was the long-time Saudi ambassador to the United States. When he left the U.S., he went back to Saudi Arabia to become the national security advisor, the first Saudi national security advisor. And, you know, Bandar was always a a Washington favorite. He was he was the head of the diplomatic corps because he was the longest serving ambassador. Uh, He had wild popularity inside administrations, be they Republican or Democrat. Everybody loved Bandar. But I remember in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, uh, Bandar coming to the CIA ostensibly for a briefing on the latest developments. And George Tenet got right in his face and said that we knew there were Saudi government officials that were involved. We knew that there were royal family members involved. And he says, Bandar, I'm telling you right now, we're going to start killing people. And I don't care if their last name is Saud. And I remember thinking, this is a historic conversation I'm witnessing. You know, I mean, George used to get mad easily and he would yell and swear and point fingers and make nasty comments. But I had never seen anything like this. And then later on, you know, years later, after all these these allegations, we see that that Saudi intelligence officers with ties to the uh, to the bombers or not the bombers, the uh, the hijackers uh, had accompanied Crown Prince Abdullah to Crawford, Texas, to visit with uh, with President Bush. And we know that Bandar's wife was involved in sending money to this Saudi consular official in Los Angeles. The money was then passed to the hijackers. You know, these are these are serious like life and death kind of kind of, we used to call them cat one issues. Category one means drop everything else you're doing and work on this at the CIA. And, and they've never been answered. And what's worse than that is- Wait, which Congress- was the guy
0: that went to Crawford?
1: It was, it was a Saudi, you know what, Larissa knows. She was the one who, who laid all this out for me. Um, he was a Saudi intelligence officer. And he accompanied, he was part of the party that accompanied Crown Prince Abdullah. Or maybe maybe Abdullah was king at the time. I can't. I, no, no, no. He was crown prince at the time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's there's there are direct lines. You can you can trace these direct lines.
0: And so, what's new from the last year, though? Because there was a leak from this lawsuit, right?
1: Yeah, there was a leak from this lawsuit, and it was it was the depth of uh, of official Saudi involvement. But you know, the the response then from the U.S. government has just been crickets. Like, well. You know, it's more than 20 years ago. We're trying to rebuild our relationship with the Saudi royal family.
0: I mean, the thing uh, is, too, though, is it doesn't make sense, right? Because no, Prince no. Bandar, and and by the way, you know, there are people who, which this is hardly worth addressing, I don't know. There are people who are upset because they think this is the modified, limited hangout. Um, and, you know, they think all this other stuff, bombs in the building and all that. But I think all that conspiratard stuff Is the limited hangout. And this was always the question was, what did Saudi intelligence know and when did they know it? But then why did they do it? Because there is just no sense in which Bandar and Faisal are interested in waging some holy war against the United States, provoking us into invading Afghanistan to bleed us to bankruptcy or get Riyadh nuked either, by the way. Right, and this is the guy you say he's close to Washington. They call him Bandar Bush. He was yeah. so close to the father there. Yeah, that's so, right.
1: That's right. So, in fact, George H. W. Bush was a regular visitor at Bandar's fifty thousand square foot chalet in Vale.
0: Okay, but I mean, but what's all this about tenant? Because if I'm going to be a conspiracist enough to say, well, look, if they did it, they did it. I mean, it sounds like what you're implying. Anyway, and which is the obvious truth to their conclusion, right, is they did this as a favor for Bush and Cheney, who needed a massive, horrible terrorist attack to kill a lot of people so that they could go and have some wars. Why else would they do it?
1: I, I would say I would push back on that only because Bush and Cheney had already planned to attack Iraq. So we already had our nice, neat little war being planned. You know, it was Richard Pearl that went to the White House on on September 12th and said, you know, we have to attack Iraq, right? It was Richard Pearl that went and said, this is our our opportunity. The plans were already being drawn up. Afghanistan was kind of a was kind
0: of a fluke. In fact, I mean, Gareth Porter thinks that, you know, one of the main reasons that September 11th happened, it wasn't a deliberate blind eye in the sense of we want the attack to happen. It was a deliberate blind eye only in the sense of Wolfowitz and the neocons consistently yeah. spending the first eight months of that presidency saying the CIA is trying to distract you with all this bin Laden and Afghanistan crap. Right. And you're going to take the eye off the ball when the prize is Saddam in Baghdad. Absolutely and by right. the way, we think he backs Osama anyway. And Absolutely all of that crap. right. Yes. But now, but here's the thing. So... But again, though, I got to nail you down because on one hand, you're telling me and this does sound like a limited hangout to me. You are a former CIA spy. Tell me, yeah, George Tenet, he was really mad. Well, he was the director of central intelligence. And, you know, there's this whole other question about his analysts at Alex Station trying to infiltrate or somehow use these San Diego guys as double agents or some kind of thing that guy uh, Ray Noaleski. Yeah. Um, you know, did the Rich Blee podcast on all right. of that stuff where like it looked like the CIA analysts knew, you know, they'd follow these guys from Malaysia to Bangkok to LAX right. to San Diego. The guy's living with FBI informant, cashing checks from Bandar's wife. And then at some point, the Alex Station ladies or whoever was in charge, just dropped the ball. Nobody tells the FBI that, oh, yeah, by the way, these guys are going to kamikaze a plane of the Pentagon. You better look out for them. And so this happens anyway. So, but, and look, by the way, I'm not really a truth on this, and I don't really buy my own argument about Bandar did this because he had a deal with Cheney to hit New York, because I think it doesn't make sense. He's taken too big of a risk that, especially you hit the Pentagon, you know, you could kill some yeah. general's wife and then he right. could get mad and right. take Dick Cheney out back and shoot him and sit in his chair and do whatever he want and never even mind W. Bush and and, and nuke Riyadh because right. that's what happens when you hit the Pentagon. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, that, right. that would be the risk. So So there's no assurance. There's no collection of assurances that would be enough. But then so what's the explanation, CIA man, for why Prince Bandar would do such a thing to us, man?
1: Well, I think that there are a lot of of true believers in Saudi Arabia, true believers in in Islam who um who don't give a shit about the United States and want to attack the United States, fundamentalists inside the royal family. and I think that's what we saw uh, in this case.
0: In fact, you remember well in, I mean the- I'd buy that, but but we're talking about Bandar and Faisal who those guys are going to betray the Bushes on behalf of some royal cousin I've never heard of who likes bin Laden's view instead? I I can't think of any other reason why they would allow something like this
1: to happen. I mean, I've thought about this for years and I just don't understand what their motivation would be, especially Bandar's motivation. You know, maybe his wife's a nut.
0: She's a fundamentalist. I don't know. I never met her. And that does seem a weird way to make that payoff. You know, Phil Giraldi, he... When when he first got into nine eleven stuff, uh-huh. fo- another former CIA officer, he went further than me on some things. I was like, yeah, I'm not so sure about some of those things. But then when it came to the Saudi thing, he actually wrote a thing for the American conservative, essentially debunking the 28 pages and saying, you know, if you don't beg the question here and you just try to look at it honestly, this isn't really out of character for what the Saudi embassy does for Saudi immigrants to the United States all the time, or people here on visas all the time. They give them a ton of money. They pay for their a education or the, this, that, or whatever. Yeah. These and kinds it's not just
1: things. the Saudis. It's all the Gulf countries do that.
0: Yeah. So yeah, if,
1: you're, if you're a citizen of that country, you get a check,
0: period. Yep. And that fine. Yeah. So here we are.
1: And don't forget, let me add one other thing. Go ahead. Don't forget, um, when we captured Abu Zubaydah in, in March of 2002 in Pakistan, we also confiscated his uh, his address book.
0: Uh huh.
1: And in I the know address where this book, is going. <laughs> yeah, th- there were there were the names and numbers. Of these two Saudi princes, and we went back to the Saudis and said, you know, what what the heck is this? Abu Zubaydah, who we believed at the time was the number three in Al Qaeda, um, he's got the he's got the personal cell phone numbers of these two Saudi princes. The next thing you know, one of them is killed in a one car accident in the desert. And the other one goes camping in the desert and is found later having died of
0: thirst. No. Well, but wasn't it also the case that he had the number for Prince Bandar's castle in Aspen, Colorado? Oh, see, that I didn't know. That I didn't know. That would be Wouldn't even... you be the guy who knows that? Yeah, I should be the guy that knows that. Yeah. Because I just think I learned that from Larissa, but... No, wow. I, that's not true. I think she thinks that, but no, no, no. I ah. remember there's some news report about Zubeda had Bandar's phone number in Aspen. Wow. But here, let me Google it as long as... Yeah, I'd like to know. We're screwing around on a Friday afternoon here, man. Um, wait a minute, you wrote the book on this guy. You would know that. <laughs> yeah, but it was like 10 years ago. Bandar
1: phone Aspen. Yes, Prince Sultan bin Faisal was the one killed in the car accident.
0: Okay, yeah, so here we go. This is, oh, here's the Aspen Times version of it. Uh, (laughs) CNN, 28 pages, indirect 9 11 link to Bandar revealed. So what's here? Um, Oh, it was in the 28 pages. Oh, it was? That was what it was. Zubeda's phone book. Both those numbers were unpublished. And one of them was an unlisted number for a company that managed Bandar's estate in Aspen, Colorado. Reads CNN. An unlisted number was also found for a bodyguard who worked at the Saudi embassy in Washington. Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I'm I'm looking at a at a book here called Blood Horse. No, 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 no. That's the site. It's uh, Why America Slept by Gerald Posner. Random house book.
0: Oh, I and, hate that guy. Isn't Yeah, he I do too, actually. <laughs> when he's not plagiarized... Speaking of Larissa, I remember him outright plagiarizing her. She wrote a thing on her blog at Largely, and then 10 minutes later, he's on MSNBC just outright regurgitating, just oh, stealing it. That guy's shame a piece him. of crap. He wrote a thing even... Like, his whole speciality was like, nothing's a conspiracy, right? MLK killed himself. JFK killed himself. David Koresh killed himself. Timothy um, McVeigh killed himself. And, and oh you're about God. to. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, this is uh, Prince Ahmed bin, bin Sultan, who uh, died in the car accident. But they later said he had a heart attack while he was driving. And there's, um, and there's a, another one. Oh, Prince Fahad bin Faisal. Uh, who died of thirst and their funerals were a day apart
0: wow Hmm. who knows well now I want to ask you about other old terror war stuff what about the Al-Qaeda attacks in Saudi in 2003 that the neocons convinced Bush were launched out of Iran oh my gosh well it was
1: 2003 or the earlier ones Mm, maybe it was 2002 19, in 1996, that was,
0: oh the, that was uh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, that's a whole other story. Well, yeah. go ahead and talk about that. And we'll get back to 03 in a minute.
1: Yeah, I but was talk I about was,
0: Kobar. Cause that's a great one.
1: Yeah. Kobar. I, I was living in Bahrain at the time. And I mean, it's, it, you can see Al Kobar from my house, right? It's just right across the water. You can see the lights at night. And I was on the phone with my wife. It was our anniversary, January. I'm sorry, uh, uh, June the 25th. 1996. And um, so I was on the phone with her. She was she was in the States. She had just had our second child. And uh, there was an explosion that just shattered the the windows of my living room. I, I, I thought my house was under attack. So I rolled off the bed and got underneath it. So I told her there was just an explosion. I got to go. And I hung up. I stayed under the bed for a few minutes and then went outside. And my... Neighbors were all outside thinking that they had been bombed. We couldn't see anything. There was no, like, you know, crater. Nothing was on fire. And I was like, I don't know what the heck that was. So I went to bed the next morning. Of course, it's all over the news that it was Al-Hobar. So I drive over there with well, another. Wait,
0: by the way, so that means this is a barracks and it was airmen, American airmen. Yes. Who were killed, 19 of them. And I don't know how you many know, wounded.
1: What you could see it, – it, it was one of the most incredible things that, I, that I've that i ever seen. I, I drove over there the next morning with, an, with another CIA officer, and Warren Christopher, who was Secretary of State at the time, flew in with a whole bunch of CIA people. And the whole front half of the building was just sheared off. Like you see – It looks uh, like Oklahoma in, City. I was just going to say, like you see in images of Oklahoma City. It was just sheared off. But worse than that, the crater was – 30 feet deep. It was so deep that water was seeping in from the Persian Gulf. And on the ceilings in the building, there was blood because the bomb was so big, people were blown up out of their beds and just kind of squished on the ceiling. That's how many of them died. It was from the, the force of the of the sound wave, of the impact, just squished them. And you went there and saw this
0: yourself. Pardon me? You went there and saw this yourself?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got devastating pictures. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. terrible. Terrible. But anyway, my point was, sorry, I forgot my point. My point was we worked really hard as a government to blame that on Iran, Mm -hmm. you know, with no evidence whatsoever. All we knew was that two guys were in a truck— Uh, they, they drove up to the, the barracks more, the barracks, I say barracks with air quotes. It was more like a, like an apartment building. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then they ran like hell. And when the lookout guy on the roof saw them running, he started running floor to floor, screaming for people to evacuate. He probably saved dozens of lives, Mm. but it was nighttime. And so many people were sleeping that they just couldn't get out.
0: Man. Yeah, and then so what? They blamed it on Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah. Exactly. And listen, I can tell you, Saudi Hezbollah
1: is different from every other Hezbollah. Kuwaiti Hezbollah and the main Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria. We've never had a beef with Saudi Hezbollah. They hate the Saudi royal family because the Saudi royal family oppresses them. Well and there's and they're some, some tiny
0: powerless little group there, right?
1: Little teeny tiny, it's a, it's probably a couple of dozen guys. So there was never any evidence that the Iranians had done this. Never. You know, we had we and They had were heard covering of this, up for who? Well, we had heard of this group, al-Qaeda, <laughs> because a year earlier they had they had blown up the OPM Sang building in Riyadh and they killed, I don't know, five people, seven people, all uh, third country nationals working. That's where I used to do my grocery shopping. Uh, they blew it up because they sold pork there, right? Like there was a back room. You could go in and discreetly buy bacon or ham steaks or whatever. So they blew it up, killed all these Indian guys that used to work there. So we knew there was this group, Al Qaeda, but but this group that we barely knew anything about, they couldn't pull off something like al cobar right? It had to be the Iranians. It's this group think that's so pervasive at the CIA.
0: Sounds like a bunch of idiot liberals on Twitter. <laughs> Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already. Time to end the war on terrorism the audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code Scott and save $500. real education. All right. Well, so I don't know. I feel like I must have let you off the hook uh, too easy there on September <laughs> 11th somehow, but it's I'm I'm very no, happy I, to I agree with you
1: 100%
0: on that issue.
1: Well, I don't even know what I think about it. So you can't cuz No, but you said, you know, you're not a believer in the the nanothermite and the Oh, Jews yeah. I hate did all it, of that stuff. Or oh, the it's space all so bomb. Yeah, no. I I don't buy it.
0: Yeah, no. But so I don't know. I don't understand it, though, because I do. I do think I understand the level of involvement of the Saudi government in doing it. And the the only obvious motive is one that to me is just too much of a stretch. I mean, and you know what? I'm saying that as a proud former conspiracy kook who predicted that attack for years before it happened. Mm. And what I said it was, was the CIA is going to do it and blame it on that bin Laden guy and then invade Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, I was saying that on the radio in 1998, 99. In fact, I I had a funny anecdote. Somebody stole the tape. I lost all my tapes out of my buddy's storage shed of my first radio show. Oh, that's terrible. But I had that anecdote and I knew that part of one of those anecdotes was I was on the phone with this guy when we were both kind of predicting September 11th. And I said, then they're going to go to war with Iraq. And then he goes, well, they'll have to go to Afghanistan first because that's where Bin Laden is now. And you got that lady, Christiane Amanpour on CNN, always trying to get rid of the Taliban. So that'll be on there too. And this is like in the end of 98, maybe beginning in 99. We're saying this when Bush hadn't even begun to run yet. And we're just like totally predicting all this. So I was like, well, I got a witness, even though I lost the tape. You know, I know yeah. I have a witness because I was talking to this guy too. And then what happened was I was at a party and I, knew, I met a guy or I re-met a guy who I know knew this guy and I got in contact with him. Oh, my God. And I told him that story. And I said, do you remember that? And I said, yeah, then they're, they're going to be a terrorist attack in New York. And they'll blame it on Osama. And then they'll uh, invade Iraq. And then you said, yeah, but they'll have to stop in Afghanistan first because of Christian Christianity and Osama bin Laden. And he goes, no, nah, I don't remember that. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I got no witnesses, but it's definitely true. Um, But anyway, but then look, even then it happened just exactly the way I predicted it. But then one, all that stuff that you just mentioned with the thermite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is all every bit of that, you know, it really like jaded me of the, that entire kind of conspiracy thinking about the stuff. And I decided I was going to hold my horses and really learn as much as I could about Al-Qaeda and who these guys were and what they were doing and all of that stuff. And so I don't know if this is a smart thing to say, but I took a lot of what Michael Scheuer said to heart then, you know, when he came out with imperial hubris and I talked yeah. with him, I asked him, Hey man. And you know, I think he was involved with torturing people and stuff like not personally, but in like participating in it and stuff, maybe you can fill me in on that. But he was a hardcore anti Al Qaeda dude. Hardcore. And, and, and even now that he's gone like way kookier, yeah, um, I still think that he says what he means. And I asked him, hey, man, come on, do you think that they let this happen, turn a blind eye, somehow got the Saudis to help and do this thing so they could have this war and this and that? And he goes, nah, because I don't think that the White House knew enough to ignore because of the childishness of people like George Tenet and Louis Free and all of these others in charge at yeah. the police and spy agencies yeah. who all hate each other so much and whatever. Yeah. So, like, what would Connelly's or Rice know to even— you know turn a blind eye to or what would dick cheney know these guys were working on missile defense in the name of north korea or whatever right, boondoggle right. when they came in that kind of thing working on getting to baghdad and didn't want to be distracted with all this saudi stuff i mean just yeah. like what you're saying with kobar like oh man we don't want to have to go after some saudi princeling let's blame it on the ayatollah and right. yeah exactly
1: Exactly. You know, let me tell you something too about uh about Scheuer. I always liked and respected Scheuer. He's become kind of a nut since he left the agency. Uh he's very conspiratorial. But or even uh, really like since the Obama years, I would since say. The Ob- Ob- that's know, a better yeah. way to say it. Since the Obama years. But I had a great deal of respect for him and and for his understanding of Al-Qaeda from the very very beginning. Um but where I finally walked away from him was just recently when he married Alfreda Bukowski, Alfreda Bukowski, the redheaded devil who headed Alex Station, who before that was the chief of operations in Alex Station, who oversaw the torture program. Uh, Alfreda was bad news from the get go. And she married him. Like, how the
0: heck did that happen?
1: So I, don't yeah, know. Like, I mean, he I was on him. I
0: mean, that's part of the. Well, go ahead and elaborate about that. Because the story is that he called Sandy Berger a pussy or something. And so he got exiled to the library. And so from 96 or from 99 through 01 or whatever it was... He was not working, but on, collecting his government check to sit in the library, but kicked out of Alex Station. And right. so she was and, running it. So when right. I was saying earlier that story, like Ray Nolesky says, I know I say his name wrong. I'm so sorry, Ray. I really respect you. I'm just too stupid to say your name right. Yeah. Um, But he says, you know, she was trying to run this up. They were, she, yeah. she and Rich Bleed. She they were trying to to turn the San Diego cell into double agents. But yes. that failed. And then they dropped the ball, something like that. Do you know about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: sure. In fact, just after that went bad, I became the chief of counterterrorism. I'm sorry, the chief of counterintelligence in Alex Station. I was working in Alex Station. Yeah, in Alex Station. Yeah. From what date to what day? Oh, I was there for a short period of time because I got promoted on the strength of the uh, of the Abu Zubaydah capture. I went up to the seventh floor. So I was there from May to August of 2002.
0: Oh, okay, but after September 11th. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: After September
0: 11th. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So she and Rich Blee were very, very close
1: because they were they were like minded on these issues. They just wanted to go in guns blazing. And if you couldn't turn somebody, then then you kill them. But like we said a minute ago, they also had this very passionate hatred for the FBI. So even after they realized that they couldn't turn these guys in San Diego, they couldn't recruit them. Not realizing that they were the actual hijackers or planned to be the hijackers. Um, they never told the FBI that these guys were in the country, you know, so they couldn't be arrested. It, all they had to do was say, look, you know, there are these bad guys. They're in San Diego. We took a shot at them and they, they turned us down over to you guys. Um, they never did that. I'll give you another example when I was in Pakistan, we had a guy, a walk-in, a walk-in is somebody who literally walks in to the American embassy and offers up intelligence. 99% of the time, they are crazy people. There are probes, usually from the Iranians, just looking to see how thick the walls are, how thick the windows are, who's got a gun, where the cameras are located. And, um, and uh, sometimes they're intelligence uh, brokers, we call them. Where, you know, th- they'll offer you a little nugget that may or may not be true, and you give them a hundred bucks, and then they go to the French embassy, then the British embassy, then the Russian embassy, and you know that's a month's salary right there. So, it's that one percent that you're working for. It's that one percent that makes you take these walk-ins very, very seriously. So, because I. Sp- spoke Arabic and, and other languages, I was the designated walk-in guy. We had a guy come in and um, he offered us some intelligence and we did a raid a couple nights later based on his intelligence. It was a bust. So he said, oh, the guy must have moved. He, you know, My, my information was several days old. Uh, for my own safety, I waited to tell you so he wouldn't know it was me. Okay. He gives us additional information. We do a second raid. It's also a bust. We do a third raid and it's a bust. So clearly this guy's a liar. We don't know why he's lying, but in the course of the debriefings, he admitted that he was the one, he was the actual guy that fired a, a shoulder fired rocket, a shoulder mounted rocket at the American embassy in 1995. So I said to The chief, I said, look, this guy's a liar and a fabricator, but we have him on this rocket attack. So let's just turn it over to the FBI and we'll grab the guy. You know, he had the opportunity to do the right thing. He's been yanking my chain and wasting my time for all these weeks. Let's get him. And then we just extradite him to the United States to face, you know, a terrorism charge. We went down to the FBI office together, which was on the first floor. And they were like, "Eh, yeah, yeah, we're not interested. Nah, this is kind of your problem. It's just a walk-in. It's like this guy friggin' fired a rocket at the American embassy. And it's not its not important enough to prosecute. That was the relationship back then between the CIA and the FBI. They just hated each other so much that that—that that there was no motivation or willingness to help one
0: another. Yeah. So a couple more anecdotes on that. You got time to kill here still? Sure. Yeah. So one, people can look this up on YouTube. It's pretty easy to find. You just type in Michael Scheuer, John O'Neill, and uh, you look John for O'Neill. the one where he's sitting at the desk testifying before Congress. And he said, and John O'Neill is the head of the counterterrorism division in New York, the FBI counterterrorism division. Well, he, he was the head of the whole FBI uh, uh, field office. Okay, and, yeah oh okay of the new york field office so the terrorism officer was under him then right
1: right exactly he was a very big shot
0: right but then he got run out of the fbi and he right. became the head of security on september 11th at the world trade center His which he knew was day. a likely target and the building fell on him so yeah, then here's him. a clip of michael Scheuer saying that um the the, the congressman asks him you know I, f- I forgot the question how he sets him up about you know that you were you were uh, uh, condemned, this guy, John O'Neill, and sure, says, that's right. I also said that when that building fell on him, that that was the only good thing that happened to America on 11 September. Oh and he's just God. mad as hell. Like, you can oh tell he's, God. like, ready to get up and fight somebody there over this dead guy that he still hates that much. And, um... And then, oh, so here's another important anecdote. And I don't know if people can find this anymore, but it should be. It was a little Twitter video. I don't know if, what it originally was. Maybe it's on YouTube, too. But it's famous people all around. You should be able to find it. It's Alex Gibney is the um, documentarian, the famous documentarian, Taxi to the Dark Side and all that stuff. And then he's got Lawrence Wright, who famously wrote The Looming yeah. Tower and a lot Looming of other Tower. things. It's from The New Yorker magazine and all of this stuff, right? Austin I. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're interviewing Doug Miller and Ali Soufan and Rossini is the other one. Mm-hmm. All three former FBI agents, counterterrorism agents. And I think Ali Soufan was O'Neill's right-hand man. And they're, they're portrayed by, uh, by um, Denzel Washington and uh, the guy that played Monk in the movie The Siege, by the way, that Lawrence Wright wrote in the wow. 90s. But anyway— So these guys are sitting down and talking about September 11th and what happened that day to them or whatever. I forgot the whole angle. But the point is this. Ali Soufan was working, again, FBI, counterterrorism, was working the coal bombing in Yemen. And then once the tower started falling down, he got a phone call that said, hey, you better come into the embassy, a.k.a. CIA headquarters in Yemen, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes in and they take him in the back room and they open up a manila envelope. Uh, And he looks at the, you know, you can imagine like it's a PowerPoint type slide, you know, little graphic thing, like a Snowden file or whatever, a little pictogram of the Malaysia meeting. And he goes, oh, I get it. Half of this is the coal bombing and half of this is what happened today. This September 11th attack is like, this is it. This is the whole plot was like hatched. Both of these plots were hatched at the Malaysia meeting. And the CIA has known everything about everybody there and everything that they've been up to this whole time. And thanks a lot for not telling me, guys, because that's why our towers just got knocked down. And now You you tell me now that they've fallen.
1: Exactly right. So and you could see zero cooperation
0: for, and I guess from Sawyer's point of view. Right. And I forget if I ever asked him about this directly. But the obvious thing, I, I think he told me this was the FBI wanted to take every scrap of data that they could find and lock it all up behind a grand jury where nobody else could get to it. Yeah. And the CIA was like, we need that stuff for killing people with. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so was that, exactly. that
0: really right? Like that was the way the beef came down was really that kind of territorial.
1: 100% true. I'll tell you another story. The night that we captured up as a beta, we, we got a lot of stuff along with him. We got his diary. We got his address book. We got his cell phone. We got a copy of the Al Qaeda, uh, training manual. I mean, this was, this was a giant leap forward for our analysts and, and our collectors.
0: And remind me what month this was. This is in this early 02. The end of March,
1: 2002. Uh-huh. So, um, in, in the chaos that was taking place, an FBI agent there by the name of Jennifer, she took Abu Zubaydah's cell phone and she put it in an evidence bag and she sealed it. And as soon as she sealed it, I mean like the second that, it, that she sealed it, it started ringing. So I grabbed it and she said, whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing? I said, I'm going to answer the phone. And she said, you're not answering the phone. I said, as soon as I open the phone, NSA is going to pick it up. This could be bin Laden calling. We don't know who's calling. This could be a major uh, event for us operationally. She goes, do not open that bag. I said, Jen, we've got to open the bag so that we can answer the phone, so that we can track the person calling and capture them. And everybody, we, we got heated. And it's still ringing, right? This is all happening within a matter of 30 seconds. And there were, you know, 36 FBI and CIA people around us, half FBI, half CIA, and they're all just silent standing there watching us scream at each other. And I said, I'm opening the bag. And she said, if you open the bag, I will arrest you and charge you with obstruction of justice. And I just stood there. And then the phone stopped ringing and I tossed it back to her. The headquarters was absolutely livid, but this, this goes in part to this This hatred between the FBI and the CIA on the one hand. And on the other hand, you know, the FBI looks at everything as an open criminal investigation. And the CIA doesn't give a shit about open criminal investigations. They just want to bust down the door and grab the bad guys and prevent the next attack. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, that was how people felt.
0: Yeah. Well... Man. So the reason I brought you on today was to talk about Joshua Schulte and how he wrote this note to the judge about how Uh, he would rather be dead than locked in solitary confinement anymore. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this guy and why he's locked in solitary confinement.
1: This poor guy, Joshua Schulte, was a CIA hacker. And, you know, the CIA's got an entire army of hackers, as you might imagine. And they tend to be quirky people. A lot of them have, you know, they're on the spectrum one way or the other. They're strong introverts and they like just sort of sitting in front of a computer all day long. Well, Schulte was very unpopular in his office. He would, he would toss nerf basketballs at people while they were working. And he he had a bad relationship with his branch chief. They just didn't like him. Well, he finally left. And what he was accused of doing, what he was convicted of doing was taking out information with him on a thumb drive that he passed to WikiLeaks. And these documents came to be known as Vault 7. The CIA said this was, in fact, a, a former CIA deputy director said this this was akin to a, an intelligence Pearl Harbor. The It was the worst, the single worst thing that ever happened to the CIA because it was the crown jewels of what the CIA was capable of doing. So Schulte was arrested very quickly and sent to MDC Brooklyn, the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. It's a notoriously horrible place. Uh, the whistleblower Marty Gottesfeld was there. Uh, uh, what's his name? Epstein was there. Uh, and many prisoners, not just Schulte, but many prisoners have complained about conditions. There's no heat, for example, in the in the uh, wintertime, and even your toilet water freezes. Uh, there are no windows Uh, you, you, go crazy because you're isolated literally from any form of human contact for 24 hours a day. You're allowed one phone call a month and it can only be to your lawyer. Uh, the, the food is terrible. It's, it's, uh, you know, a bowl of Cheerios for, for breakfast, a bologna sandwich for lunch and a bologna sandwich for dinner every single day of your life. So, um, Schulte was, he went on trial last year. And was acquitted on two counts. And then it was like another eight counts uh, that, that it was a hung jury. And so the Justice Department decided to retry him. And these are all espionage counts. They retried him. And he did something that was like unbelievably stupid. He fired his lawyers. And he said that he could represent himself better than they could represent him. Uh, you know that old saying that the the man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Uh, he ended up being convicted on all charges, and he now faces eighty years in prison. Uh, the way they've they've treated him indicates to me that when he finally comes up for sentencing, which I think is in March, uh, he's going to get the maximum or pretty darn close to the maximum.
0: Well, and they're giving him these uh, special administrative measures too. Yes, is that right?
1: So this is- yeah, they're giving him special administration administrative measures, uh, which really cut him off completely from from the outside world. He can't speak to family members. He can't have visitors. He can't speak to the media ever. Uh, the only reason that we know about this is that he wrote a letter to the judge, which he's allowed to do, and then the judge released it by, by having it uh, put in the court records and leaving it unsealed. So you know th- there are two um, uh, CMUs of uh, um, management units. What's the what's the C stand for? Communications. Uh, communications. Thank you. Two communications management units in the United States. One is at the Federal Penitentiary at Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, which also has the federal uh, death row, and the other is um, at the the Supermax prison in Marion, Illinois. Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblowers there, Marty Gottesfeld, who's a hacktivist and never hurt anybody is there. That's where Victor Boot was. I mean, these CMUs and, um, and, and SAMs, they're supposed to be for the worst of the worst, the most dangerous, the most horrible, the most deadly prisoners that we have in America. And they're not, they're used for political reasons to silence people.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you think about, uh, who, you know, what we're talking about here, I read a, a thing where they interviewed the jurors, too, and they're like, well, he was guilty of the crime and everything. But, you know, the worst you could say was he was guilty of the offense. We're, right. like, we're talking about leaking government secrets to somebody. Right. We're not talking about robbing a store and putting a gun to some lady's head and, you know, that's some right. Kind and, of and many or of the... even some, you know. Uh, call scam where you rip off old ladies of their savings or right. something. We're talking about leaking government secrets here and they're treating him when you think about like who goes in the hole. It's somebody who is already in prison for murder and then murders somebody right. else in there or right. something like exactly. that, right? Not exactly. this guy who's just, boy, you sure did make CIA mad and everybody knows right. it's it's not the CIA, it's just CIA because you don't say the God, it's just God. And right. so look at what they can do to you. They'll they'll give you a living death in so the true. hole.
1: So true. And and that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a living death because it's not like he's going to be put in the hole uh, for, for a week for insubordination or for a month for fighting somebody. He's going to die in there. He's going to go into the hole and he's going to stay there for the rest of his life. It's terrible. It's a terrible injustice. And I wanted to make another point too. If we've got the time, that is that, that much of what he is alleged to have released was actually in the public interest without his revelations. We wouldn't know that the CIA can, can remotely take over control of our cars, you know, by hacking into the car's computer system to do what to drive the car into a tree or into a bridge abutment or off a cliff to kill you. We wouldn't know that the CIA can take over control of our smart TVs and reverse engineer the speaker so that it acts as a microphone, even when the TV appears to be off. I'd like to know if the CIA is doing that to American citizens, but we wouldn't know any of that without Josh Schulte.
0: Yeah, and, you know, marble cake, Well, look, they can break into your server and make it look like some other country did it. Exactly. <laughs> they put a couple
1: of Kyrillic uh, words or words in Arabic or Farsi and say, oh, look, it was the Iranians that did it. or was the North
0: Koreans that did it. Yeah. Look, they wrote Iron Felix <laughs> right in there. Um, <laughs> marble cake, they call it. Well, and this is the thing, right, is that anyone could have guessed this, I hate that if you go, oh, yeah, you're just finding this out now or whatever. Look, anyone could have figured that the CIA would sure. spend as much money as they can building their own NSA if they can. Sure. Um. But what this did was it proved that that's what exactly. they did. And that, in fact, exactly. our discourse was entirely lacking when we're discussing FBI and NSA spying on the American people. CIA is getting a free pass as though their only job is messing with the foreigners or whatever, like in the mythology. When in fact, they have all of, you know, essentially looks like many of the same capabilities, if not the uh, server space that the NSA has to spy on Americans without, of course, any pretext of it being a criminal investigation or any kind of thing like that. They can do whatever they want and call it intelligence collection. Yes, exactly. And with no one to review them, who's going to review them? No, Diane Feinstein? No,
1: nobody reviews. You know, this is another thing. The CIA has tens of thousands of employees, and the intelligence committees have, what, a dozen and a half people? And they're going to do oversight of every program and every operation? Well, and
0: they're not even trying. That's not no, even their job. No, they're all yeah, cheerleaders.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, man. Um No, it's a hell of a story. And look, there's another important part of this uh, Vault 7 thing is that Assange, man, you know what? I need to get my facts totally straight on this. I hope that you know it better than me. Assange was negotiating with the CIA and they were going to get him a deal with the Justice Department to drop the charges. But then, was it Assange's lawyer? Went, or something like that, I think, went to somehow let... Uh, John Warner in the Senate. No. And then he went to Comey at the FBI and uh, Comey ruined it.
1: Do I know what I'm talking about? You know, I hadn't heard that specifically, but I'll tell you something similar. Um, I had paid a Republican lobbyist when Donald Trump was president to get me a pardon. And I'm going on the Tucker Carlson show. I went on like 12 times and Tucker Carlson has these chirons pardon, uh, Assange and Kiriakou with our pictures side by side. And my lobbyist keeps going to the white house. And then I get passed over. And I heard later from the lobbyist that Trump was going to pardon Assange Snowden and me. And Mitch McConnell went to him and said, if you pardon, uh, uh Assange or Snowden, you're going to lose the Republican caucus in the Senate and they'll vote to convict you. And so none of us got pardoned. He just walked away. Yeah. Um, and I said, why, why can we not be mutually exclusive? Why do I have to be lumped in with Assange and, uh, and Snowden when my case was so much less controversial? And she said, that's just how they saw it.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because that was the the Republicans in the Senate, that Lindsey Graham and them who yes. were doing the extorting, that was their yes, take. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And now, so listen, I think I found something here about, so this is just the Wikipedia damn version, forgive me, but it's the only thing that came right up that, that had this. It says... During January and February of 17, the Department of Justice was negotiating through Assange's attorney, Adam Waldman, for immunity and safe passage for Assange to leave the embassy and come to the United States um, to discuss risk minimization of future WikiLeaks releases, including redactions, and to testify that Russia was not the source for the WikiLeaks release in 2016. And then in mid-February... 17 Waldman, who was pro bono, asked Senator Mark Warner, who was co-chairman of the Intelligence Committee, if he had any questions to ask Assange, and he contacted, there's something left out there, he contacted Comey, and Comey told Waldman, stand down and end the negotiations with Assange. Now, the other thing, this doesn't mention what I was thinking, the other thing, oh no, it does, it goes on to say something about, um... They quote Ray McGovern here. I know he was working off of something else. Um, at, at the time, they were, they were working on negotiating over Vault 7. Like, he let it be known to them that he had it, but he hadn't released it yet. Wow. And it was like, look, man, if you guys want me to not release these documents, set me free. And the CIA, the way I remember the story, and I'm sorry I don't have all my footnotes together here, but the way I remember the story was the CIA was willing to make that deal. They yeah. were like, don't you release that leak, man. You want to, right. maybe we can work out a deal, but don't you do it. And then once they ruin the deal, then he posted it just like in the deal, you know? Wow. Um, See, but there so, it is. It goes back to the fact that, that their interests are frequently at odds and they just hate each other. Yeah. Well, and that would make sense, right? I wonder how pissed off the CIA was that. Because it was, you know, the way I remember it. Anyway, it was clearly like they were willing to make the deal, but and and even I think we're working with DOJ on it. But then when the FBI found out about it, that was when it, you know, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, wow. but um, I mean, they do have something about the marble framework here. I called it marble cake. Something it was the marble framework. That's the thing for leaving false tracks of the uh, yes. server you broke into <laughs> and all of that.
1: Yeah, oh, terrible.
0: Man. Okay, well, anyway. um, Oh, one last thing before I let you go, which mm-hmm. is apparently I'm in Al-Zawahiri put out a new podcast.
1: <laughs> I hadn't heard that.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. So, I mean, they claimed <laughs> that they killed him last summer in a yeah. drone strike in Afghanistan. Right. And now, but the thing I read, you know... I, I need, to, I need to go ahead and, uh, and bite the bullet, I guess, and buy a membership at that site website. I hate to do it, um, but they really are always ahead on all those translations and stuff. Um, but I think what I read, though—I I barely read into it. I just barely saw a little news summary about it that said that there was nothing obvious in there that— um, made it clear what time it was recorded right Uh, it's not like he cites a current event that happened after he was supposedly killed or something obvious but you know it's purported to be new or it was at least new to the world yeah so yeah
1: oh my gosh fantastic
0: (laughs) okay with that i'll let you go have a great weekend and a happy new year i appreciate you you sir same to you good stuff fantastic thanks for having me hell yeah all right, you guys. That's John Kiriaku. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.